Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome back to A Freedom of Ideas. My name is Corey DiBiase, your host. It's a pleasure to have you here. So today, this is just a quick little experimental interlude. Well, okay, let's, let me first explain what the normal plan is. The normal plan is that once a week, Thursday mornings typically, we're going to release a new episode. Now, if this is part of a series, it'll be pretty much on that schedule, should be that once a week schedule. Maybe there'll be a little break between the series so that we can kind of catch our breath, catch up on our reading, do all that kind of good stuff. But primarily, once a week when we're, we've got a regular series going, you'll see a regular show that's part of that kind of narrative that we hope to establish with these shows. However, and this is kind of the way it works in philosophy or in anything where you're, you're trying to link together ideas and you're trying to pull on threads and trying to figure different things out, of course there are all these little side ideas that we don't ever quite get to, that are just sort of off there on the periphery, and maybe they're not even really explicitly part of the central argument that we need to make, the central kind of narrative that we're trying to construct, but still, they're really interesting. They do relate. And of course, it, it just rounds out the picture a bit. So as a consequence of all that, in addition to our standard shows, I'm going to do these kind of side series. I'm not going to be on any regular schedule. They are not going to be uh, sort of as well prepared as the, the regular series is. We're not going to uh, do as much in the way of, of getting all the multiple different sources together. Typically, it's going to be about one pretty discreet idea, digging into that, thinking about it a little bit probably a, a bit more off the cuff than the average episode would be, um, but hopefully just a nice little augmentation to the, the regular narrative. And these are things also, which by the way, if you happen to skip all of these bonus episodes, you should still be able to follow the central narrative without too much, too much trouble. Uh, so we're going to call these epiphenomena. That'll be the, the title for these little side series. And by the way, I am not committing myself to any kind of regularity for releasing these. I think this series particularly because it just goes off in so many different directions that, by the way, that personally just fascinate me. I do tend to think that more than likely this series is going to probably have more of them than will be the, the case for other series. But, you know, who knows? Um... So no making no obligation for how we're going to keep going with these, making no expectations as to when we will release them. Nonetheless, here you go. These are the Freedom of Ideas Epiphenomena series, uh, the very first of them in which we will discuss Alan Turing. Now, on the, the first episode, I, I think I mentioned Alan Turing uh, at once and just as a little kind of chuckly inside joke, uh, throwaway reference. But he certainly deserves a lot more attention than that. He deserves a lot more attention than he's going to get here today, but um, we'll leave that to the side for the moment. So Alan Turing... Uh, Absolutely fascinating guy, uh, mathematician, uh, cryptologist, uh, um, and really the probably I, I think it's fair to say the first person that we would describe as a as essentially a computer scientist. Uh, he more or less invented that field to a very large extent. Now. Alan Turing's story starts in a, for us at least, starts in a, in a just a fascinating way. He was working on 
decoding the, during World War II, decoding the Enigma machines, which were used by Nazi Germany to communicate between their, well, to, between all the various aspects of the Wehrmacht. And of course, it was an encoded, uh, very, very strongly encrypted uh, coded communication methodology that Enigma, Enigma allowed them to do. Essentially, they fed their communications into this machine which created a level of randomness in terms of how they were encoded that made it almost impossible to break them. And by the way, then the machine was sort of reset or just uh, skewed just a little bit each day so that each day that code, the way it was encoded, would be different than it was the day before. So if by some means you managed to break this code, uh, this code which you could argue was developed by one of the very first instances of what we would now call artificial intelligence. If somehow you managed to break this code by midnight, well, that's that's fine, because at 12.01, uh, and I don't know the exact times, but suffice to say, once every 24 hours, these codes are getting reset, and thus, uh, whatever work you've done to crack it on Monday, you got to start pretty much from scratch on Tuesday, and it's not going to follow any kind of normal uh, rubric where like, okay, I see what the pattern is. We just need to skew the pattern a little bit. Instead of starting at one and adding three and subtracting two, we start at two and add three and subtract one. It's not that at all. It is a level of randomness and complexity that's, uh, well, put it this way, that is impossible for the likes of me to adequately explain. So it's Alan Turing's job then uh, in his work with uh, what we now sort of uh, colloquially, ref colloquially, my goodness, refer to as Bletchley Park. Uh, um, they, he was part of a team that was working on decoding these, uh, these encoded messages. So to fight artificial intelligence, and again, no one was using this term at the time, um, and I think some purists would say that the Enigma machines were not technically artificial, and not even really an early instance of artificial intelligence, but leave that to the side for the moment. Um, to fight off that, what we might call proto-AI that's at work in the Enigma machines, of course, uh, Turing realizes that he's going to need some artificial intelli intelligence of his own. So he ends up designing this, um, well, we, I mean, now we would call it a computer. It is, I would assume, one of the earliest instances of what we would call a computer. Although if you're thinking about your laptop or something like that, you're, you're getting entirely the wrong impression in your mind. This was a gargantuan machine. It made a ton of noise, and it was essentially trying to do almost on a mechanical level, what, you know, a tiny little fraction of one of today's, uh, of what one of today's microchips would be doing is essentially through a, a processed kind of multiple, multiple hundreds of processed tape machines. In any event, uh, far over my head to get into the actual mechanics of that, uh, he used this machine to essentially try to counteract and go through the patterns of the coding of the Enigma uh, machine and of the, the Enigma signals that were coming through and just try and make some sense of them, which eventually they did, which means that Alan Turing is, you know, if we're going to list uh, a handful of names that we would say are most responsible, uh, perhaps we would even want to say most symbolically responsible for uh, the Allied victory in World War II, Alan Turing would have to be very high on that list. Now, we can get into a whole debate as to whether, you know, what's more important? Is it Churchill or is it Roosevelt or is it 
Good old Stalin, um, who, of course, it's still icky to say that we were uh, allied, uh, that he was part of that alliance. But, you know, that is a much bigger subject for an entirely different day. So if you if you think of all these kind of um, uh, these figures whose faces and names we associate with the allied struggle, you could certainly debate. Is it those guys we want to worry about or is it the millions and millions of soldiers who are actually out there risking their lives uh, and in many cases sacrificing their lives? Well, that's another really interesting, very good conversation, not the conversation we're going to have today, um, but suffice to say, I mean, you, you just can't have the conversation of, about World War II without talking about Alan Turing's um, uh, contribution uh, to the Allied victory. So he said, again, that basically, uh, rudimentarily, it was artificial intelligence that Turing was using, that this giant machine that he made was essentially using to overcome those Enigma uh, codes and to, to crack that code on behalf of the Allies. So now, it, it's interesting. For as long as I've been thinking about these, these different pieces, which is a, it's yeah, been a little bit of a while now, um, this term artificial intelligence, when I first started reading about these issues, you, it was a pretty esoteric term. It was one that you heard in kind of sci-fi circles or, and certainly philosophical cir circles, uh, computer science circles. But this wasn't a term that I... And I, yeah, I could be wrong about this. I certainly don't know every person on earth. Uh, but this was not a term that was being widely used by, you know, just any given person that you would talk to on a day-to-day -day basis. I think now, actually, strangely enough, the term artificial intelligence has come to be much more part of our uh, quote-unquote lingua franca. This is something we do discuss a fair amount. But I kind of wonder if we've gotten a little bit away from the core of the original philosophical meaning. Now, of course, that's typically going to happen. If you start using a word or a phrase every day, it's not going to mean exactly what it meant when it was locked up in a philosophical laboratory uh, in a thought experiment in this kind of pristine environment. Now that it's out in the world, of course, it's, uh, it's acquired all number of different associations and all that's fine. But let's for a moment just recall what the idea was originally. Now we use it a lot to sort of uh, to sort of talk about a, a very high level of um, a, a very high level of of sort of computational prowess. So okay, if we've got AI, that means we can apply a huge amount of computer processing to a to a given problem, and that will eventually solve the problem. Well, that's fine, but we got to go back to the original definition, which was that artificial intelligence was exactly that. It was the idea that you could invent, that you could create an actual sense of intelligence within a machine, that you could program a computer in such a way that it actually thought. It was actually having a, a sort of self-generated intelligence. Now, intelligence in this context is, is going to have a, a couple different um, implications, I guess you'd say. Uh, first of all, we would say that it is self-initiated. So, so let's say this is the difference between uh, computational power and actual intelligence. If I feed a very well-defined problem into a very well-defined uh, computer program that can solve that problem but do so more or less by rote, the way we would think of a, a, a sort of hyper-complex 
um, automated factory line building something. You know, we don't think that in a in a factory, a machine that is helping to build a car, that it's it's actually designing pieces of a car or that it's thinking through what it's doing. It's just doing something it was programmed to do. Now we now can we can amp up computation to the point that it it far exceeds human capacity in in any way. But it's still computation. I think most of us would still want to draw that line between computation, which is essentially, for lack of a better term, is essentially following our orders versus intelligence, which is self-initiated. So artificial intelligence shouldn't just work on a problem because I told it to. Artificial intelligence should be able to work on a problem because it wants to, because that problem occurs to it and is fa- and it is fascinated by that problem on its own. In the same sense, then, it is self-generating. It it can go out and acquire new ideas. It can soak up new information on its own without, again, I'm not feeding programming into it. I'm not feeding information into it. It's going out there and finding things on its own. It's building up its own knowledge base in exactly the same way you and I presumably are building up our our own knowledge base in in whatever way we choose to do that. And then finally, of course, behind this, the the last phrase that we would use is self-directed. It is choosing where it is going, what it's doing to follow these different paths. On one level, that all sounds kind of straightforward. I mean, not straightforward to create it, but it's straightforward, fairly straightforward to define it, to describe it, and to discuss it. But it actually, it gets into some pretty murky and somewhat difficult philosophical questions. Um, so essentially, to say something is, is, uh, is artificially intelligent is to say that it, it is smart like I'm smart. Actually, probably it would be smart on a level that I can't even dream of. But more to the point, it's smart, again, in this kind of self-directed, self-generating way. It's not just computing. It is actually conscious. It's it's directing its own path, and it's it's taking in impulse and stimuli from the world, one way or the other, in ways that we can't control, that are dictated by its own structure, not just by what we told it to do. So a question kind of pops up, right? So how, how do we know? How do we know when the line has been crossed between, okay, now I can have a supercomputer that can do computations that, again, the human mind is just not uh, not capable of, certainly not built for. I'm never part of our uh, you know evolutionary mandate that we be able to actually count the number of stars in the sky, or, or you know, to use a somewhat farcical example. Um, but that's what uh, that's what uh, simple AI, not actually intelligent, but just like high high levels of computation. That's what that can do. It's just you can process information at rates that we can't even conceive of. But then how do we know the difference between when something is just doing that and when it has crossed into this line of being, call it what you want, artificially intelligent, uh, self-aware, conscious? I mean, there are all these increasingly loaded philosophical terms that we would associate with something that we would call artificially intelligent. So how do you know when that line has been crossed? Well, this brings us back to our new friend, Alan Turing. He proposed a very simple solution to this, but a, a simple solution which, you know, like everything, or you know, it has some very complicated or at least some, some, some kind of difficult 
consequences that we need to think through. So for, for Alan Turing, the, the, the question of how do you tell if, if a computer has attained artificial intelligence or whatever you call the machine, if a machine has become artificially intelligent, how do you know when that's happened? Well, for Turing, it was very simple. What he said was, okay, if we can put this uh, artificially intelligent machine, computer, whatever it is, uh, essentially on the same footing, if you'll excuse a, a totally inappropriate term, presumably for the circumstances, as another human being. And I can communicate with that human being and with this ostensibly artificially intelligent creature. And I can't tell which is which. I can't tell which is the computer and which is the person. Well, that, that means we've crossed the line. That's it right there. We have, we've made it artificially intelligent because, you know, I, 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 and I'm not quoting Turing here at all, but he was a fairly practical person, it seemed like, for all that he was an abstract genius on a level that I can't even conceive of. Nonetheless, you know, he always bent his genius towards some very practical things. And ultimately, practically, you know, what else do we need to know? We can't define our own intelligence really. We cannot rigorously say exactly what human intellect is or how it happens or why it happens or how to judge one human intellect versus another. So, you know what? If we can't do that in a very rigorous way, why are we trying to make this very rigorous, like, okay, we will know exactly when artificial intelligence has happened because of this kind of abstract score that we will give it or this very rigorous test that will put the software through or who even knows what? We have no metric by which to judge any of those things. We have no metric by which to say what artificial intelligence looks like because we barely know what, quote unquote, natural intelligence looks like. So let's just stop it. Let's be simple. Let's say if, I, if, if this computer can trick me into thinking it's not a computer, can trick me into thinking that it's self-aware, that it's conscious, that it's artificially intelligent, well, guess what? It's not a trick. It is. That's, it's going to be that simple. We're going to say that if it can convince me, then that's good enough. That's what artificial intelligence means. Now, there's one particularly, what I think is a very compelling problem that kind of crops up as a result of this definition of artificial intelligence. And, and I don't know, it's not even a problem, but it, it, we'll, we'll call it an implication. The implication here is that Really, all that matters is the form. Really, all that matters is the performance of intelligence, not necessarily what's going on underneath. So by the, 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 the confines of Turing's test that he put forward, um, it really wouldn't matter if we had, if we could somehow quote unquote prove that this artificially intelligent machine I had built that, that beat the Turing test, that won the prize and, and, and tricked someone into thinking it was a, it was a fully conscious human being, it wouldn't matter that much if, if you could sort of prove that like, no, 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 look, this is all just very mechanical. It's just hyper complex. It's just a really, really elegant machine that's designed to trick you into thinking it is not a really, really elegant machine, that it's got that something else, that, that special je ne sais quoi, that, that is uh, the, 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 the particular spirit of intelligence, whatever that happens to mean, which again, we can't really define it. 
But to Turing, that's all nonsense, at least as far as the confines of this test go. He says, if it's just a performance, if it's just a machine that that actually produces this outcome, well, that doesn't matter. The outcome is what matters. And the outcome is that another presumably uh, intelligent creature recognized this as kin and said, well, yeah, this is, this is good enough. This is, I cannot tell that this is not another human being. And I, we keep saying human beings, of course, because, you know, I mean, let's, let's be obviously honest about the practicalities here. Our definition of what is intelligent is basically human intelligence. That's, we don't, we don't have any way to really rigorously separate the notion of intelligence from our practical definition of human intelligence. And that's, that's another rabbit hole that we could go way, way, way down. Um, and that's something that really deserves a lot of consideration, but that's, that's not for here. That's not for today. Bottom line, for Turing, all of this was, on a practical level, if this machine can trick me into thinking it's conscious, it's not a trick. This is consciousness. This is the way it works. Now, this would really, and, and we'll see this more and more as we go through this series, this this uh, this kind of divide between the quote-unquote essence of consciousness uh, and, 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 uh, and intelligence, and you know, I mean, to keep it germane to our our uh, our discussion here of choosing of freedom of all these things that notion that there's something essential there's a special spark there somewhere in the middle of the machine that makes it so that yes this is really intelligent um this person or this machine or this whatever is really capable of making a choice is really conscious is really intelligent that notion of there being something essential there in the middle as the essential prime motive force behind all this versus that idea of essentialism versus the idea of, I, and I, I, I don't even know precisely what to call it, but let's, let's just say the sort of, you could call it performative, you could call it the externalized notion, the perceived notion of intelligence. For Turing, again, doesn't matter. That special essential thing to him, as far as the Turing test is concerned, that special little spark means nothing at all. That's not what he's there to talk about. If you can get a machine to trick me into thinking that it has the special spark, well, that's as good as it having the special spark. So now I, I don't really so much want to solve this problem, and I wouldn't even go so far as to say that that Turing was trying to lay down a, a very particular philosophical stance here, I, that it doesn't matter what's on the inside, it's only the perception that matters. If you perceive intelligence, ergo, there is intelligence, and it's all that simple. I don't know whether he actually meant to make that point. And I don't frankly care. I just think it's very interesting that in the Turing test, it does set up this dichotomy for us. And it does present a scenario wherein it is very reasonable to say, you know, I don't care if it, there's that, that there, not only do I not care if there's a trick going on here, not only do I not care if this machine just quote unquote tricked me into thinking that it was conscious. We're all but saying that there's no such thing as that trick, that if the machine tricked me into thinking it was conscious, well, maybe it's a trick that I think I'm conscious too. Um, or we would say it's not a trick. If it can do this, if it can be perceived this way, then that is consciousness. It is all a matter of what the final product is, not a matter of some essential 
you know, ethereal, evasive, elusive, essential idea back there in the background operating uh, the the ghost in the machine that we then have to to sort of figure out that it's going to be the, our essential definition of, of what consciousness is, of what free will is, of what uh, intelligence is, all the rest of these different things. And that's where we're going to leave it for today. So again, this was the first of our Epiphenomena series. I certainly hope you enjoyed it. Uh, just as a reminder, these are going to be much more occasional. We're, they're going to come out kind of when I feel like it, when I have time for it, when I feel like there's one of these uh, little divergences that we could take that would be interesting to dive into a subject that's not specifically related to the the core narrative that we're talking about, and that I'm, I'm honestly, I'm frankly not going to really take the time to explicitly tie it back to that main narrative, but I certainly think you see the relationship, particularly as you go forward in the uh, this kind of philosophy of mind, the, the series on the on free will that we're doing now. As we go forward with that, I think you'll see the connection between between this uh, discrete subject and the the larger the larger idea. So. I do want to hear from you, though. What did you think about this format? What did you think about this uh, execution, uh, more frankly? Uh, obviously, these are much more off the cuff than I'm accustomed to. Uh, having only done a couple episodes, I think you'll see there's uh, somewhat more straight-laced uh, versions of these things that we do in the main series than I'll probably be doing on the side series. Um, so more digressions. I probably got into talking a little too fast, a little too often. I probably wandered down some tangents more frequently than I, I hope I normally would in the regular series. Um, but I, I guess I'd love to know. Uh, for all that, if we allow a little bit of that, that means there are more episodes more frequently. means I can go off into some, uh, some digressions into these uh, different subjects that don't exactly relate to that main narrative, but which nonetheless, of course, I, I certainly think are, are fun, enjoyable things to be, to be exploring. But let me know. Was this too chaotic? Was this a little too, uh, a little too unhinged for folks? Did they did they not enjoy this as much as they would a regular episode, or was the more conversational approach was that actually uh, was that something folks enjoyed? So very much love to hear from you on all that. But before we close it out, one last uh, little point to keep in our minds about uh, or to be contemplating when we think about Alan Turing and the the Turing test. Now, of course, the Turing test was not designed to mimic a human being comprehensively, meaning you didn't have to first create artificial intelligence and then have that artificial intelligence be in a completely convincing human-looking android, right? So it wasn't going to be in a room with a computer and a room with a human being, and we're then trying to say, oh, well, which one do you think is is conscious and has free will and, and has intelligence? Of course, that's going to that's gonna skew the game right off. So we're going to put these two com uh, competitors, if for lack of a better term, uh, these, these two combatants in the Turing test, we're going to put them on a level playing field by presumably using a text-only interface, right? Because... In text, if we're just using text, I'm not going to hear what sounds like a tinny voice and say, oh, well, that's the robot right there. And certainly I'm not going to be able to look at, well, that's obviously a computer and that's obviously a human being. So, you know, given that I have a stake in the game of saying that human beings are, of course, conscious and thoughtful and intelligent and all that good stuff, of course, I'm going to choose the human being in that situation. 
text, I, I can't tell the difference. You know, I, uh, even if it was like, say the, the, the font, I mean, I'm probably not going to think, oh, well this is times new Roman font. That's, that's definitely going to be the human being. Cause we all know how those, uh, those computers and Skynet and, and all those androids, how they just love that, that Calabri. That's so obviously a, a computer thing to use Calabri font. Obviously, that's ridiculous. That's not the, not the way it works. So we're just going to do this by text because that puts us on, again, this level playing field. But it does kind of bring up a, a kind of an interesting thing, uh, maybe even a somewhat awkward question that we probably all, myself included, we probably all want to be asking ourselves. So just think for a minute and you can even look at your phone, but you know, not if you're, if you're driving right now, obviously, um, just think through all the texts you've sent, say in, in the past week, and all the Twitter posts you've you've done in the last week, or Facebook or Instagram or you know, whatever, all your social media activity, all your emails to friends and family, and geez, maybe even lump in emails to your fellow professionals, uh, emails that you were at least to some extent paid to compose and send. Put those all together and imagine that instead of actually getting to compete directly in the Turing test, like in a live fashion, you just had to bundle up all those communications and sort of ship them over. And they were going to be judged by the Turing test without you actually being there in the room. We're just going to take all your texts, all your social media, all your emails, and we're going to stack that up uh, next to a bunch of others, and we're going to decide uh, which which ones are the conscious ones, which ones are the the self aware ones, and which ones are obviously just things being uh, churned out by a machine. So for all that, then to me at least, the awkward question sort of bubbles up: If that's the way it worked, would any of us pass? <laughs>